0: How have multiculturalism and evangelism been entwined since the first days of the church's mission? How is multiculturalism part of the Christian faith's DNA? Why is the church of today more tribal than it was 2000 years ago? How should an awareness of each other's gifts change the way we do church and leadership? And how is the medium the message? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church, and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Harvey Quirani. Harvey lectures on African Christianity and theology at Liverpool Hope University, and has previously taught courses in theology, African studies, and mission at several colleges across Europe and Africa, as well as in the US. His latest book, published this year, is Multicultural Kingdom, ethnic diversity, mission, and the church. And our question today is, what is God's multicultural kingdom, and how should it change the way we do mission and church? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Harvey Quirani, welcome to Talking Theology.
1: Thank you so much. Really delighted to be with you today.
0: Harvey, I wonder if you could introduce yourself to us, and in particular, the academic posts that you've had, and tell us about your role at Liverpool Hope
1: University at the moment. My role at Liverpool Hope, I am a lecturer in African Christianity and Theology, but I started out my academic journey in missions, in missiology. So it's been a shift to get to teach African theology, African Christianity, which I'm really enjoying at the moment.
0: Now tell us a little bit about your personal background, about your life journey, and tell us how that has connected with your interest in what we're talking about today, which is multiculturalism and the mission of the church.
1: I come from Malawi, come from southern Malawi. I come from a very important place in the history of missions in southern Africa, this is where David Livingstone brought the very first missionaries of the University's Mission to Central Africa, UMCA, in 1861. So I grew up in a village where Livingstone family, his descendants, spent some time in. They owned a lot of property there. And that means I grew up hearing about missions and missionaries quite a lot, and I was fascinated by their stories. During my high school and college years, I spent my free time reading mission biographies just really fun at the time in southern africa up until in 2000 when i was invited by a church in switzerland to come and help them figure out how to train ministers for their denomination so that was my way out of africa into europe when i got to switzerland the greatest shock for me was to see a post-Christian Europe and Switzerland, Germany. is a very good example of that. I was coming from Malawi in the context of a revival where Christianity was growing very rapidly and found myself in St. Gallens, North Switzerland. Christianity was almost non-existent. That was a shocker. So I then decided to continue working in Europe as a missionary. Did that for three years in Germany. Came to the UK, did a Master's in Missions, Went to America, did a PhD in missions. I came back here, worked with a Church Mission Society, (CMS) in Oxford, for a bit, and then ended up coming to Liverpool, where I'm teaching African theology. So that's, that's my journey. That's my story. You talked
0: about your experience of arriving in St. Gallen in Switzerland and the shock of seeing a post-Christian Europe. And you talked about the reason why you stayed was to be a missionary into Europe. One of the things you've written about in your book about multiculturalism has been that reversal in direction of global mission. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and why you think that's really significant?
1: Well, we do know that Christianity now is a worldwide religion. We find Christians in almost every part of the world. But that is a new phenomenon. It was not like that just 70 years ago, in 1950 almost 80% of Christians in the world lived in Europe or North America, and they were white. Today, as we speak, that has come down to probably 30 33%. So the majority of Christians in the world, black or Latin American or Asian, but they are living outside the West. Now, we celebrate that. It's good that Christianity has exploded in that way, in the past 50 years. And the way we live our Christianity is that it's okay for all these Christians to be Christians wherever they are. Our unique experience in the UK here is that we have Christians from all over the world living in this small island. And that means that Christians from different parts of the world are living together and having to engage one another in how to. Live out their faith. The problem that we experience is that we are not really trained to engage in cross cultural conversations as Christians. That becomes a problem. So we see I think it's the easy way out that African Christians can belong with fellow Africans in African churches, same with Asians, same with Latin Americans, white British churches do their own thing. When we do that, we miss out the real reason that we are a global body of Christians. And that is to cross pollinate whatever gifts that God has given us, that we can exchange them, we can share them. And I believe that in sharing those gifts, we begin to understand and hear God better. So it's important that we figure out how to live this New reality of the multicultural world body of Christians as a multicultural kingdom of God, uh, that we belong together, because it is in that belonging together that we, we can hear God better, that we can see God better.
0: We're going to come back to that later on, Harvey. Let's go back to kind of first principles, if we can. As we reflect on this gift of multiculturalism in the church, and you talk about this unique opportunity we have in the UK to understand the gift of multiculturalism as a way of seeing God better. As we go back to the Bible, are there particular biblical passages or resources that can help us see this gift of multiculturalism as
1: one of God's permanent gifts to the church? I think that Acts 2 becomes a very good place for us to start in that it appears that the Spirit is intentionally creating a multicultural body of Christians. It's poured out on a day when Luke says Jews from every part of the world were in the city. Uh, We do understand that at this point in time, the Jewish diaspora is spread around the whole Mediterranean area, going as far as Persia, India. And they were there in the city on that day. They experienced, they saw this surprising thing. And when they returned to their cities, they they could talk about, you know, this strange thing that we saw in Jerusalem. And the very fact that when the Holy Spirit is given, people speak in tongues. So, on the one hand, there's that gift of speaking in tongues. But on the other, there's also the gift of hearing the tongues. That those people out there could hear them and say, we are hearing these people talking about great things of God in our own languages. So there is that. There is is just the fact that the Spirit communicates to us in our diverse languages, in our own ways, in ways that we can understand. But if we move forward a bit, we follow the story, it appears to me that one of the critical things that happened around that day is simply the fact that Jesus has, for three and a half years, been moving around with these 12 men from northern Galilee. He's brought them down to Jerusalem. This is the climax of the story, but he brings them down to Jerusalem. I think with an intention to connect them with the Jewish diaspora. So, before long, we see that the Jewish diaspora becomes quite an important part of the church in Jerusalem. When we get to Acts six, they have become quite important in the community that they need to find leaders that to. Take care of their needs, the needs of the diaspora community.
0: There's the bit, isn't there, about the Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews, isn't there, and that contrast? And and clearly, that community in Jerusalem has already sort of got that diversity within
1: it. That's right, yes. And the leaders that are chosen in chapter six all have names that sound like they are from the diaspora. They are not Palestinian, Hebraic Jews, they have come from somewhere else. We move forward, we get to. Eleven, when persecution has hit Jerusalem, Christians are being dispersed to other parts of the empire in so many ways. And we find that it's not the Palestinian Hebraic Jews who engage in evangelism that crosses cultural boundaries. It's the diasporic Jews who choose to preach to the Gentiles. So, I mean, we can follow that. But Let me make a quick jump to a community that emerges in Antioch, where Antioch is is almost like London of the time. This is where people from around the world really gather. It's on a serious trade route. You don't go from east or south to Rome by land without passing through Antioch. It's the hub. So a community develops in this city that is multicultural. Over against the Jewish communities who are going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day or the worshippers of the emperor who are doing their own thing in their own way, this new community is embracing all these peoples of different cultures together and they're worshipping on the Lord's Day, but they're unique. It's not a tribal group. It's a matai tribal. It's a matai cultural group that looks different from everything else that everybody's doing. And it's out of that context that people wonder, no, what do we call this group? What do we call these people who are doing something strange? Let's call them Christians, Christianoi, right? And so right from the beginning, the Christian community is a multicultural community. I mean, we could go on and talk about Acts 15 when it's sort of officially agreed that you don't need the Gentiles, to convert to Judaism. Let them be Christians. We will do this thing on their terms. Just make sure that they they are hospitable to the Jews, so don't bring food offered to idols to the table, so that the Jews can partake of the meals with a free conscience. But multiculturalism is, is in the DNA of Christianity. We do it injustice when we believe that uh, people have to belong to fellowship communities that require no cross-cultural jumping you show the way in which that hub of
0: early Christianity antioch was from the outset a multicultural community and scholars haven't they have highlighted that was the real evangelistic heart of the early church in comparison i think to jerusalem is a powerful point you're making that there must be a relationship between that multicultural identity this as you say post-tribal group of christianoi who existed christians and their own evangelistic energy that came out as a result.
1: That's the root of the story, that we can belong together as people from many different tribes in this wonderful kingdom of God.
0: In your book, you explore also the way in which that was true of the early church in the sense that they were doing mission in a multicultural context, which was the 1st and 2nd century Roman Empire. What are those characteristics of that early church and its mission that we need reminding of today?
1: The early church is operating in the context of the Roman Empire, at the margins of the empire for the most part. But they have this good news of Christ that they need to share with the world as people at the margins. And so they get together in these small teams, and the Bible is quite clear on the people who worked with Paul along his journey. And you see that in that team there are people from Africa, there are people from all over, and they are working together as a wonderful multicultural team that's preaching this good news of Jesus Christ. So as a group of Christians living at the margins of the empire, having these many brothers and sisters different cultural understanding of different cultural identities, working together to understand God in a fresh way, but also to preach the gospel in a new way, in a context that actually needs the gospel.
0: So Harvey, you helped us think about the evidence from Acts, but also later on in Acts and these kind of multicultural teams that were part of the early missionary endeavours. It reminds me of the quote from Rowan Williams writing on Paul. He said that the ancient world was a a world of tribes, a world of parties, and the most extraordinary thing about the Christian church was the way it stripped down those barriers between male, female, Jew and Greek, slave and free. And what you're saying is that both within the origins of that church in Antioch and within the way in which the early church was doing mission, there was an embodiment of this marvellous crossing of cultural boundaries that was the straitjacket of the ancient world.
1: I do think that is exactly what the gospel does for us, in that it breaks down the barriers uh, among the tribes and brings us together as one people, uh, one new humanity uh, that's made by followers of Christ. So there's no Greek, no Jew, and and between those two there is a tension of one, one is better than the other and the other thinks it's better than the other. And Christ comes and crushes that boundary and says, you are one. You are equal. You are one. You have to work together. And I really think that's what the gospel should be saying to us today, that we are equal, we are one, and it's one kingdom, one king, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, whether you are in Malawi or you are in Mali or Manila.
0: You've written in the book about, and you mentioned earlier about, what you observe in the UK, that I think is beyond debate in terms of the way in which people from different cultures can end up worshipping with people in similar cultures to themselves. And you talk about one of the ideas behind this, which is what's known as the homogenous unit principle. Just tell us what the homogenous unit principle is when it comes to thinking about mission in particular. And what's the problem with it as a way of doing mission and living out the good news?
1: So the homogeneous unit principle comes out of Fuller Theological Seminary in the 50s, 60s. It's a mission theory that's propagated by Donald McGovern, an American missionary who worked in India for quite some time. And when he worked in India, he realized that Indian evangelists were more successful at converting Indians which I think should make sense on the mission field. But what he did was take that back to America and begin to preach that even in America, you have to be careful that people want to be evangelized or people want to belong to churches uh, that don't ask them to cross cultural barriers. If you want to reach white people in America, find a white evangelist. If you want to reach black people, find a black evangelist. If you want to reach Latin Americans, find Latin American evangelists. Now, on one hand, that makes sense. People want to identify with uh, whoever is reaching out to them. On the other hand, what came out of that was a theology that argued that churches then had to operate in the same way. That people could start churches focused on a certain people group, and that would be their exclusive mission field. So you end up having white churches and black churches and Latino churches, and th- those don't even mix and talk to one another. So at the end of the day, it it just becomes another way of preaching Christian racism, brother. that people shouldn't be asked or expected to engage and fellowship with people who don't look like them or who don't talk like them. So we end up with a a form of Christian tribalism that makes it difficult for us to engage one another and makes it difficult for us to receive the gifts that we bring, that we come bearing for one another. So that's my thought about the homogeneous unit principle.
0: And would it be your case that it's a selling short of the gospel in the sense that while it might be a group of people coming together to celebrate an individual salvation that they've been given through Jesus Christ, they're not actually living out the full breadth or depth of the good news, which you say was in the early church, this crossing of cultural boundaries that are as real today as they were then?
1: Yes, there is something really that happens when we cross cultural boundaries, I do think that the critical translation that happens with the first community when they leave Palestine and find themselves in Antioch and other parts of the empire really sets Christianity on a path that today, 2,000 years later, there are over 2 billion of us around the world. If it had not crossed that cultural boundary, let's start thinking again. We can't talk about the Messiah to Greek people. Let's find a good way to talk about the messiah to them and so that messiah now becomes christos christ and the greeks would understand this that translation becomes the very foundation that makes christianity survive this long if it had stayed in palestine it would have just been another branch of judaism and very tribal very jewish inside out we won't have Gentiles in the body of Christ.
0: So as we think about what a church that engages seriously with the gift of multiculturalism looks like, can I ask you a little bit about some of the terms that you use? You contrast multiculturalism in your book with assimilation and cultural pluralism. Tell us what those words mean, if you wouldn't mind, Harvey, and why multiculturalism is important. For the future of the church's mission?
1: Of course, the term multiculturalism is quite controversial on the political scene. Both Angela Merkel and David Cameron are on the record for saying multiculturalism has failed. But I think that when we, as the body of Christ, think about multiculturalism, it's exactly the very thing that we need, that we can't do without it. So we have to make it work. The church has to find ways to make multiculturalism, at least in our ecclesial circles work. Now, generally, what happens in a church when a family joins that doesn't look like the majority of the church, the normal expectation is for that family to adjust to fit in with the church, right? So our culture is like this, this is how we do things. You join us, you got to learn how we do our things and join in that makes sense. Um, I do think that it does injustice to what God is calling us to do, but that's what we've done for the larger part. Another way that we have done this is really saying a foreign family joins a church. We celebrate that, but we tell them, find other people like you, start your own church, and we meet once a month as a wider body of a wider church, but you do your own thing, we do our own thing and we can talk when we meet on a special Sunday in the month. And that is what I consider cultural pluralism, that there are many of you different cultures, but the cultures are not talking to one another, that we are not really changing one another because we are engaging one another. And that's why I think multiculturalism goes a step ahead, leaves us all open to being transformed by the strangers among us, that when a foreign family comes into the church both the church and the family, uh, in the exchange of their gifts, they are transformed. And that, that exchange of gifts is only possible through the Spirit of Christ. Really, this is, this is what Ephesians 4 has in 16. Paul says, the body is glued together by that which every member supplies, so that every member needs to supply for the body to be held together as a whole.
0: Tell us the steps that help those cross-cultural conversations take place, Harvey. You've articulated why assimilation, which is be like us, doesn't work. Why cultural pluralism, which is everyone can be different, but don't expect any conversations to take place, isn't good enough either. But why multiculturalism is made possible by the spirit of Christ. But what are the practical steps that help us embrace this theological reality?
1: First, we have all to get to understand that each one of us comes with a gift. And so, we engage one another with that mutual respect that I bring a gift, that person brings a gift, and we have something to exchange. And that really has to speak to the way the world works now, because the way the world works now is in a very hierarchical manner. With Westerners, Doing something different and the rest of the world doing something different with Westerners always giving and always teaching and always doing this while the rest of the world is always receiving and always learning. And but when we get together in the sense that I'm going for, it's that we all have something that we need to learn from one another. We all have something that we need to receive from one another. So that, that humble posture of Yes, I bring something, but I also have come with empty hands I want to receive from you. That goes a long way. In our church planting conversations, we still plant churches using the homogeneous unit principle. That's normal. That's that's common. I belong to a church planting movement myself. And what we tell our church planters is, go find people who look like you, who think like you. And Make that your niche target and your church will grow. But what I am arguing here is that probably when we have those church planting conversations, we become more intentional about planting multicultural churches that allows multicultural church planting teams to get together and work together. That uh, when we send out our church planting teams, we make sure that there are white people and black people and all these going to work together to shape the culture of the churches. So we have to be attentive to the cultures of our congregations. If we do it well, our congregation culture becomes more open to learning from others, receiving from others, as well, of course, giving to others who may not even look like us. But we pay attention to that. It's not just people like us who have to hear the gospel.
0: Harvey, we're recording this podcast during Black History Month, and in the book you share a number of striking statistics about how particularly African Christians are becoming a core part of the makeup of churches in Britain. One figure you quote is that in London around 60% of churchgoers are now from an African background, and that's a huge contrast with mainline denominations where, like the Church of England, of which I'm a part, where the leadership is overwhelmingly white. If you had to give those in leadership roles a particular challenge about how they can mobilize churches to be truly multicultural and receive the gifts that God gives, what advice would you give?
1: Do the best they can to make their church leadership look like the demographic makeup of where that church is located. And of course, that will mean doing some uncomfortable things, but really, the church has to look like the demographic that it's located in. So in the UK here, the black population is growing, the Asian population is growing. If we pay attention, our churches will begin to reflect that growth. Of course, we see that in our membership, but not really in its leadership. So we need to begin to sh- make shifts that will make it possible for people of other races to 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 actually be leaders in our in our congregations. I think that that's the way that we can show the world that racial reconciliation is possible.
0: You link there to the wider good news, and you clearly believe and, and argue powerfully in the book that this is part of the good news of Christian faith, the heart of the good news of Christian faith that the world really needs to hear. Can I ask you, Harvey, a personal question, if I can, to finish? What has writing this book and exploring and writing and teaching on this done to, I guess, warm your own heart and fire your own heart for the type of church you want to be part of and which you think is the hope for the world?
1: Yeah, writing the book, I wrote it last year, 2019. So that was before the whole movement that we've seen over the summer in both in America and in the UK and other parts of the world. But I lived in Minneapolis for seven years. So the George Floyd story is close to my heart. I have friends who knew George Floyd. Part of my experience of racism in the U.S. uh, is really what caused me to think seriously about what is it going to look like if the church can embrace cultural diversity and commit to following God together. And that's the hope that I have for the world, that I believe we're living in a world where race is an issue. We can't overlook that. Race is a serious issue. But it's the church, it's a multicultural church that will begin to shift that conversation by showing that actually our God calls us to a different posture. He calls us to actually be together, work together, love one another. That love one another of John 13 is not, it's not just for that small group that was in the upper room. It's for all of us, in spite of our skin colors and whatever I do. Back to the issue of the congregation and embracing cultural diversity. I still really believe that the medium is the message, that what we put out, that what we show the world is, is what the world hears. And a multicultural church becomes the best medium to preach the good news to the world that Jesus brings us together and we can belong together. This was his goal, a global gathering of followers of Christ that we see in Revelations standing before the throne, worshipping in their own different languages and not secluded according to their tribes.
0: That's an inspiring place. At which to end, Harvey Quarani Thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology.
1: This is a pleasure. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St John's College in the
1: University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at kranmahal.com.